in the words of Francis of Assisi, when he met Brother Dominic on the road to Umbria, Hi. You know, maybe once a year or once in a lifetime, you hear a story that leaves an indelible mark on your mind and your heart, changes your perception of so many things, including yourself. I heard this story 38 years ago, and it goes this way. Once upon a time, there was a tree, and she loved the boy. And the boy loved the tree. Every day he would come and climb up her trunk, swing from her branches, eat her apples. When he was tired, he'd lie in her shade. When he was active, they'd play hide-and-go-seek. One day the boy carved in the trunk of the tree, tree, I love thee. And that made the tree very happy. But for some reason, the boy stayed away two whole days. When he came back, the tree was so happy, she literally shook with joy. She said, come, boy, climb up my trunk, swing from my branches, eat apples and be happy. The boy said, uh-uh. In the last two days, I found out what real fun is like. So I need some money. You got any money? I have no money, said the tree. But pluck all my apples, sell them in the city, get money and be happy. So the boy plucked all her apples and he went away and the tree was happy. But now the boy stayed away a month. When he came back, the tree was so happy she could hardly speak. She said, come boy, climb up my trunk, swing through my branches and be happy. Life's a lot more serious than fun and games, the boy said. I want to get married, settle down and have a family. So I need a house. Can you give me a house? The forest is my house, said the tree. But cut down my branches, boy, and build a house. The boy cut down all the branches, and he went away, and the tree was happy, but not really. A year passed. Finally, the boy returned. The tree said, come, boy, climb up my trunk and be happy. Yuck. I am bored. I am disgusted with life. I want to get away to a foreign country, so I need a boat. Can you give me a boat? Cut down my trunk and build a boat, said the tree. The boy cut down her trunk and he sailed away. Forty years later when he returned, the tree looked up and said, but I have no apples, there's nothing to eat. My teeth are too weak to chew, said the boy. I have no branches, you can't swing. I'm too tired to swing. I have no trunk, you can't climb. I'm too old to climb. I'm sorry, said the tree. I have nothing to give you. Oh, I don't need very much anymore, the boy said. Just a quiet place to sit and rest. And the tree, straightening herself up as majestically as she could, said, Well, an old stump is good for something. Come, boy, sit and rest. And the boy did. And the tree was happy. In Shel Silverstein's beautiful modern parable, which he calls the giving tree, when the tree freely surrenders her apples, her branches, and her trunk, I'm reminded of Jesus, of whom Paul wrote in Philippians, he emptied himself. 
He cried out his heart, nailed up his hands, and poured out his blood to help us believe that he loves us. Significantly, Jesus chose the giving tree of his cross as the demonstrative sign of his absolute love for men and women, a love that did not count death to high a price, or in the words of Cyril of Jerusalem, the mightiest act of love ever to arise from a human soul. So, do you see how goofy, how wacky, how crazy it is ever to imagine that Christianity consists primarily in what we do for God? You know, the poor, pitiful, puny things we sometimes manage to do for him, and we trudge along joylessly, making these wearisome little sacrifices like going to church on Sunday or coming to Jama in Dallas. Heroic generosity. God must be overwhelmed we got here. Why do we gather? Maybe a few people came out of fear, you know, afraid they're going to miss something. Maybe a handful out of habit. I mean, it's the Christian thing you do when you're committed to this community. You go to the big meeting. But perhaps the majority of us are here this morning because we'd like to draw a little closer, but not too close, to the furnace of love who is the living God. We'd like to stay close enough to the fire to keep warm, but don't want to plunge in because we know we come out burnt, incandescently transformed, and life will never be the same again. Is this what Christianity is all about? Is this the good news of Jesus? Is this the kingdom that he proclaimed? A community of men and women who go to church on Sunday, read their Bibles now and then, vigorously oppose abortion, don't get X-rated movies, never use vulgar four-letter words, especially when girls are around. People who smile a lot, kid around, hold doors over with people, get along with everybody. Is that why Jesus went to the bleak and bloody horror of Calvary? Why he emerged in shattering glory from his resurrection? Why he poured out his Holy Spirit upon the church? Was it merely to make nicer men and women with better morals? The gospel is absurd. And the life of Jesus meaningless? Unless we knew that he lived, died and rose with but one purpose in mind. Pentecost, to pour out the Holy Spirit upon the church, not to make nicer people with better morals, but brand new creations, a community of prophets and professional lovers, men and women who would surrender to the mystery of the fire of the Spirit that burns within, who would live in ever greater fidelity to the omnipresent Word of God, who would enter into the center of all that is, into the very heart and mystery of Christ, into the center of that flame that consumes, purifies, and sets everything aglow with peace, joy, boldness, and extravagant love, which is really what it means to claim the name Christian. Our religion never begins with what we do for God. It always starts with what God does for us. The great, wondrous things that God dreamed up to achieve for us in Christ Jesus. This morning, when the Lord comes streaming into your life, in the power of his word and the fellowship of his faith community, all he asks is that you be astonished that he bothered to come to you at all. 
the next time you look at a cross or a crucifix and learn at what price you're loved. All God asks is that you marvel, be surprised, let your mouth hang open in silent wonder, and begin to breathe deeply. If you'd like to benefit most from our opening meeting this morning, I would suggest that from this moment until you put your head in the pillow tonight, you let the focus of your inner life rest on one truth. The staggering, mind-blowing truth that God loves you just as you are and not as you should be because nobody in this building is as they should be. That God loves you, not the person next to you, not that God loves Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, not that God loves the church, the world, not that God loves in a vague way the whole human race, but the truth that God loves you in such a way that he'd rather die than be without you. Isn't it difficult to believe you're worth the death of anyone, least of all the all-holy God? It is with theological certainty, in the power of the word, I can stand here this morning and state unequivocally, God loves you as you are and not as you should be, because none of us are as we should be. Do you believe this? You know, I've not asked a Christian in 20 years, do you believe God loves you? He's not replied, oh yeah, no, not quite a while. Then why the way they live? Fears of guilt, anxiety, shame, remorse, low self-esteem, self-hatred. Oh, they believe God loves them in some vague, distant, abstract way. But to be hard-pressed to say that right now, the essence of the Christian life is a love affair. And not just a simple love affair, but what G.K. Chesterton called a furious love affair going on in Christ themselves at this very moment. Do you honestly believe that with all the wrong turns you made in your past, the mistakes, the detours, the moments of sin, selfishness, dishonesty, and degraded love, that God has used them all to bring you to where you are this morning, and the word says you are standing on holy ground. This moment, do you truly believe that God loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity, that he loves you in the morning sun and the evening rain, without caution, regret, boundary, limit, breaking point, no matter what's gone down, he can't stop loving you. If you don't fully accept that, you're living a life of illusion, superstition, cowardice. You are projecting onto Jesus your own hateful feelings toward yourself, assuming he feels about you the way you feel about you, that you're worshiping the God of human manufacturing. There is one God of the Christian vision, the God revealed by and in Jesus Christ, who this moment comes directly to your seat, walks you straight in the eye, and says, I have a word for you. I know your whole life story. Right now I know your shallow faith, your feeble prayer life, your inconsistent discipleship. Nothing is hidden from my eyes. And my word is this. I dare you to trust that I love you as you are and not as you should be. Because you're never going to be as you should be. Biblically to trust in the love of God means to accept with my head and my heart that God loves me in a creative, intimate, unique, reliable, and tender way. Creative. Out of his love I came forth, through his love and sustained in existence. In fact, my next heartbeat is love and gift 
in the Father's hand. His love is intimate. Do you have a skeleton in your closet in your past life? Something you did so shameful, so selfish, that when you think about it, your palms start to perspire. You say, please, God, don't let anybody ever find out about that. The intimate love of God reaches into that dark place. You know, in the scriptures, reconciliation is not primarily making peace with somebody else. It's, first of all, making peace in that part of yourself where you can never find peace before. Such is the intimate love of God. His love is unique, meaning God loves me, not as you think I am, or as I think I'm supposed to be, but as I really am. And the real Brennan Manning is a bundle of paradoxes and contradictions. I believe in God with all my heart, but on a given day when I see a nine-year-old girl raped and murdered by a sex maniac, or a four-year-old boy slaughtered by a drunken driver, or a tsunami that wiped out 160,000 lives, I wonder if God exists. I trust him and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty if I don't feel guilty. I'm wide open and I'm locked in. I'm trusting and suspicious. I'm honest and I still play games. Aristotle said I'm a rational animal. I say I'm an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. That's the real Brennan. And God's unique love reached out to embrace me as I really am, not as I assume I'm supposed to be. His love is reliable, meaning it's never let me down. I'm sure of this. If we have the opportunity today to share your life story and mine, we'll find a striking similarity in at least one respect. Both of our lives have been a celebration of God's faithfulness in good times and in bad. Ironically, it was April Fool's Day, 1975, and at 6.30 in the morning I woke up in a doorway on Commercial Boulevard in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and I woke up in an alcoholic fog, sniffing vomit all over my sweater, staring down at my bare feet. I didn't know a wine I would sell in my shoes during the night to buy a bottle of Thunderbird. I was in the late stages of chronic alcoholism. I'd been in the street for 18 months, uh, sleeping on the beaches until the cops chased me, sleeping in doorways, sleeping out the fields, sleeping under a bridge, clutching my little precious bottle of taka vodka. And it wasn't just that I drank too much. I broke every one of the Six Commandments six times Tuesday. It was a life of utter moral degradation as the fabric of my Christian life totally unraveled. It was a life of absolute scandal and shame. And that morning when I woke up in the fog, I see a woman coming down the street, maybe 25 years old, blonde hair, attractive lady. She had a four-year-old son in her hand. The boy broke loose from his mother's grip, ran over the doorway, and stared down at me. His mother came up quickly behind him, cupped her hand over his eyes, and said, don't look at that filth. All of that is is pure filth. And 30 years ago, that filth was Brennan Manning. And the God I've come to know by grace, the Jesus I have met on the grounds of my own self, loved me as much that morning in the state of disgrace as he does this morning in the state of grace, for his love is never, never, never based on our performance, never conditioned by our moods, emulation or depression. It knows no shadow of alteration or change. The love of God in Christ Jesus is reliable. And his love is tender. 
Tenderness is what happens to you when you discover you're deeply and sincerely liked by somebody. If you communicate to me today that you really like me, not just love me as a brother in Christ, but really like me for who I am, whether I never wrote a book or gave a sermon, but like me for who I am, then you open up to me the possibility of liking myself, accepting myself, loving myself. The look in your, the amiable look in your eyes banishes my fears and my defense mechanisms like sarcasm, ridicule, name dropping, giving you the appearance I got it all together. All that falls away if I sense you like me. I'll become more open, sincere, vulnerable, and affectionate with you than I ever dream of being if I thought you didn't like me. What happens is, I grow tender. My friend Ed Farrell up in Detroit goes on a two-week summer vacation in Ireland. The reason? His favorite uncle is celebrating his 80th birthday. Well, on the morning of the great day, Ed and his uncle get up before dawn. They get dressed in the darkness and silence. They go for a walk around the shores of Lake Killarney. Just as the sun is about to rise, his uncle turns and stares straight at the rising sun. Well, Ed didn't know what to do. Stands beside his uncle, shoulder to shoulder, 20 full minutes, not a word exchanged. And then his uncle, his 80-year-old uncle, goes skipping down the road, and he's beaming, radiant, smiling ear to ear. Ed Farrell catches up with him and says, Uncle Seamus, you really look happy. And his thick Irish broke, he said, I am, lad. You want to tell me why? Yes, you see. The tears washed down the old man's face and his beard. You see, the father is very fond of me. Oh, me father is so very fond of me. If I ask you right now, do you really believe God likes you, not loves you? Because theologically, God has to love you. God loves by the necessity of nature. Without the eternal interior generation of love, God had ceased to be God. If I ask you really believe he likes you, and with gut-level honesty you could reply, Oh, yes. The Father is very fond of me. There would come a relaxedness, a serenity, a compassionate attitude toward yourself and your brokenness, and you wouldn't have to bother buying my new book out there, The Wisdom of Tenderness, because you're already living it. In the 49 years since I was first ambushed by Jesus in a little chapel in the Allegheny Mountains of Western Pennsylvania, and in literally the tens of thousands of hours of prayer, meditation, silence, solitude, living in monasteries, caves, deserted places, I am now absolutely convinced that on Judgment Day, the Lord Jesus is going to ask each of us one question, and only one question. Did you believe that I love you? That I desire you? That I waited for you day after day? That I longed to hear the sound of your voice? The real believers there would answer, yes, Jesus. I believed in your love and I tried to shape my life as a response to it. But many of us, who go to church faithfully every Sunday, are going to have to reply, <clears throat> well, uh, frankly, no, sir. 
You never really believed it. There were a lot of wonderful sermons and teachings about it. I remember one morning there at Jama in Dallas, there was that old, white-haired, wild-eyed guy raving about it. <clears throat> Even at a sign hanging in my room, said, Smile, God loves you. But I always thought, now, that was just a way of speaking, a kindly lie, some Christian's pious pat on the back to cheer me on. And there's the difference between the real believers and the nominal Christians that abound in our churches across the land. No one can measure like a believer the depth and the intensity of God's love, but at the same time, no one can measure like a believer the effectiveness of our gloom, pessimism, low self-esteem, self-hatred, and despair that block God's way to us. Do you see why it is so important to lay hold of this basic truth of our faith? Because you're only going to be as big as your own concept of God. Remember the famous line of the French philosopher, mathematician, Blaise Pascal? God made man in his own image, and man returned the compliment. We often make God in our own image. He wants it to be as fussy, rude, narrow-minded, legalistic, performance-based, unloving, unforgiving, as we are. In the last couple of three years, i preached the gospel to the financial community on Wall Street, New York City, the Airmen and Women of the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, a thousand physicians in Nairobi, Africa. I've been in churches in Bangor, Maine, Miami, Chicago, St. Louis, Seattle, San Diego, and Honest, the God of so many Christians I meet, is a God who is too small for me because he is not the God of the Word. He is not the God incarnate in Christ Jesus who loves us as we are and not as we should be. After I was ordained a Catholic priest in the Franciscan Order in 1963, I taught theology for three years at the University in Ohio. Then there was more graduate school at Columbia University, New York City, Catholic University in Washington, D.C. I started a teaching graduate school and really began to take myself quite seriously. But I soon became disenchanted with the phoniness in my life. I was making a career out of the ministry. So I took a two-year leave of absence. I went off to Europe. I joined a community called the Little Brothers of Jesus. A life of manual labor there with the poor. The nights wrapped in silence, solitude, and prayer. I was a dishwasher in France, construction worker in Spain. I lived voluntarily as a prisoner in a prison in Freiburg, Switzerland, where the warden was sympathetic to the idea of priests and ministers living in prison, not as chaplains, but as prisoners. My identity was known only to the warden, lived in a cell, worked in a spent factory eight hours a day, and simply tried as the founder of the community, Charles de Foucault, cry the gospel with your life, communicate through friendship. Now, you can't communicate through preaching and teaching because the people you with don't go to church anyway. Came back to the States and with four other Franciscans down to Biolabatry, Alabama, from 1971 to 73, I worked on a shrimp boat in the Gulf of Mexico. The shrimpers weren't coming to church. We tried to be in the church with the shrimpers. 73 to 75, over two years of campus ministry in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. That summer, I suffered a precipitous collapse into alcoholism. The following year, I began to write my first book. Then I met Rosalind. After a seven-year courtship, we married. And, of course, the marriage of a celibate Catholic priest may be something of a persona non grata, in the eyes of the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. So as doors closed for ministry there, many windows opened in a wide Protestant 
primarily evangelical world. It's really been a meaningful life and sometimes an adventurous one. But I'd like to close by sharing with you the, the decisive moment in my own journey with Jesus of Nazareth. In the winter of 1968, I was living in the Saragossa Desert in Spain, in a cave some 6,000 feet above the sea, and I was there for several months in complete solitude. I never saw another human face, never heard the sound of a human voice. On Sundays, a man from the village of Farlete below came up at a burrow, and he dropped off at a designated spot, food, drinking water, kerosene for the lamp. As you went into the cave on the right, there was a little chapel, with a stone altar, a tabernacle looked like a treasure chest, a tall standing crucifix behind the altar. On the left there was a stone slab that served as a bed, a few potato sacks for a mattress, a stone or so to cook with, the kerosene lamp. I got up every night at 2 a.m. for what we used to call in the old church nocturnal adoration. I go to the chapel and try and spend at least one hour in praise and thanksgiving to God. On the night of December 13th, 1968, during what began as a long and lonely hour of prayer, I heard in faith Jesus Christ say, For love of you, I left my father's side, and I came to you, who ran from me, who fled me, who did not want to hear my name. For you I was covered with spit, punched, beaten, and fixed in the wood of the cross. My friends, that was over 35 years ago. And this morning, in an hour of quiet time at the hotel, I realized those words are still burned on my life. That night in the cave, I looked at the crucifix a long time, figuratively saw the blood streaming from every wound and pouring Christ's body, and I heard the cry of his blood. This isn't a joke. It is not a laughing matter to me that I have loved you. The longer I look, the more I realize that no man has ever loved me and no woman can love me as he does. I went out in the darkness. I shouted into the night, Jesus, are you crazy? Are you out of your mind to have loved me so much? I learned that night what a beautiful man told me. They went to seminary. 22 years old, three years fresh out of the Marine Corps, Korean War. And he said to me, kid, you will not understand this now, but the day you experience the love in the heart of Jesus Christ, nothing else in the world will ever again seem that beautiful or desirable. How long have you been a Christian now? How long have you been going to church now? How long have you reading your Bible now? Do you know in your gut what it is to love and to be loved by the Lord Jesus? What it is to have your love unsatisfied, endured in loneliness? God, a loneliness is ready to burst your restless, ravenous heart. Have you known it for a fleeting moment in your whole Christian life? Or have you known it and forgotten to remember what it was like the day that Jesus burst into the sealed chamber of your heart? The pain taken away, the hole filled up. You reach that and embrace this sacred man in the same real intimate way that a man embraces a woman, a woman embraces a man, and said to him, Come hell or high water, no matter what happens in Iraq, Iran, North Korea, Wall Street, your world, your church. 
I can't walk away from you. My life has no meaning, direction, or purpose if you are not at the center of my personal history. If that moment has not darkened your life with its brilliance, I don't care how young you are, how old, male, female, clergy, lady, charismatic, traditional, progressive, conservative, you do not understand what Jesus meant by good news, by abundance, fullness of life in the Spirit, and I submit, that's why he called you here by name this morning. Yes, called you by name, not to scold or frighten or threaten, but to make you aware, aware, with new depth and greater dimension of his relentless tenderness, of his passionate pursuing, healing, reconciling, what Chesterton called the furious love of God in flesh in Christ Jesus. My friends, this and this alone is authentic Christianity. Not some code of do's and don'ts, or tedious moralizing, or Elizabeth bidding commandments. Christianity is not primarily a moral code, or an ethic, or a philosophy of life. It's a love affair. A love affair. The thrill, the excitement of being loved by Jesus Christ, as I am in my brokenness, of falling in love with him. He takes us to the Father. They pour out the Holy Spirit upon us, not to be nicer people with better morals, but brand new creations, prophets, lovers, human torches, ignited with the flaming spirit of the living God. My prayer for you this morning and throughout this week is just this. That if you haven't already, or if you haven't forgotten to remember, that you will come to experience in surpassing measure the incredible passionate joy that I have known in the love of Christ Jesus. That you'll go on experiencing it and sharing with others until that beautiful day when the giving tree will stand in majestic splendor and all of us together will climb up the trunk, swing from the branches, and eat apples forever and ever. Would you gently close your eyes and join me in prayer? In that lovely Quaker phrase, center down, sink into the center of your grace being. In faith, become aware of Jesus dwelling within you. Recall his word in John 15.4, make your home in me as I make mine in you. Now don't think anything, don't intend anything, don't promise to perform anything. Just grow still and let yourself be loved in your brokenness. Like slipping into a tub of hot water, let the love of Jesus seep in, saturate, permeate, penetrate every part of you. It's one thing to understand intellectually he loves you. And quite another thing to realize it, to experience it, to be in conscious communion with it. And let me suggest that you make your prayer your own personal response to the loving invitation of Jesus contained in this inspired song. Come as you are, that's how I want you. Come. 
you'd please take out something to write with. This is a homework assignment. I ask you to spend 15 minutes today of prime time when you're alert and alive praying over these three passages. Isaiah 43, 1 through 5. Ephesians 2, 6 through 10. One John 4, 16 through 19. 
Oh, there's one more, Psalm 103. Let me repeat. The passages are Isaiah 43, 1 through 5. <coughs> Ephesians 2, 6 through 10. 1 John 4, 16 through 19. And Psalm 103. I'll close with a blessing written by my spiritual director in New Orleans, Larry Hine. May all your expectations be frustrated. May all your plans be thwarted. May all your desires be withered into nothingness. That you may experience the powerlessness and poverty of a child. And sing and dance in the love of God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit. In the words of Francis of Assisi, when he parted company with Brother Dominic on the road to Umbria, <clears throat>